This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett, and you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. It's Lyme Disease Awareness Month, and medical journalist author Helky Ferry will be along very shortly to talk about what can only be described as a near-total lack of of awareness about chronic Lyme here in Canada. Uh, Polling stations, in the meantime, have opened at a referendum on self-determination in Donetsk and Lugansk regions of southeast Ukraine. And the question on the referendum in Donetsk is as follows. Do you support an act of independence of the Donetsk People's Republic? The ballot papers are printed in Ukrainian and Russian with two options for answer yes and no. Now... You may be asking yourselves, why should we care about a referendum vote in faraway southeastern Ukraine? Well, I would put to you that that yes or no vote is far more significant than, for example, the upcoming provincial election right here in the province of Ontario. When we vote on uh, June 12th, little or nothing will change here, whether it's the governing liberals that get back in with a minority or a majority or whether the progressive conservatives get in. They're all just managing the decline here in the province, uh, rearranging the uh, the deck chairs on the uh, Titanic, if you will. Uh, but the referendum votes in southeastern Ukraine could very well have grave consequences. These seemingly benign votes might just provide the tipping point, which could lead to a major military confrontation between Russia, the U.S., and its NATO allies. I'm talking nuclear war, and I'm not overstating things here, I don't believe. We've got a lot riding on these yes or no votes in both Donetsk and Lugansk. Let's suppose for a moment the ethnic Russians in these two regions vote to secede from Ukraine and throw their lot in with Russia. How will Ukraine respond? Will they accept the vote, or will they intervene militarily? If Ukraine's interim leaders reject such a vote, how will Russia respond? Would that provide Putin the justification for invading Ukraine? If he does, how will the U.S. and its NATO allies respond? 
So you see where this could go. Meanwhile, the U.S. is performing military drills in Eastern Europe. They've sent troops to Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia. How would the U.S. respond, I wonder, if Russia were to send troops to Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala? How would the U.S. respond if the Russians tried to put nuclear missiles in Cuba? Oh, wait. I've seen that movie before. Now, uh, I also want to draw to your attention a very big event coming to Toronto. For all of you fans of Jim Mars, and I know you are legion, my good friends Patrick and Kadena from Conspiracy Culture are bringing Jim Mars, the author of Rule by Secrecy, Crossfire, which served as the uh, inspiration for Oliver Stone's JFK, and of course, Alien Agenda. Jim Mars will be in Toronto for the very first time Sunday, June 22nd at the Bloor Cinema. And uh, Patrick and Kandina have been kind enough to ask me to participate. I'll be conducting an interview with Jim on stage. And then that will be followed by an audience Q&A. And then after that, now this is cool, an opportunity to, to hoist a cup of cheer with Jim and myself and Patrick and Kandina at a pub across the road from the Bloor Cinema. So, details. You go to conspiracyculture.com. And right there on the uh, the homepage is a big banner ad for the uh, Jim Mars event. Click on that. It'll give you all the uh, information, times, how to get tickets, and so forth. Once again, Sunday, June 22nd, at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto, Jim Mars. You don't want to miss that. It is, as I mentioned, May, and it is Lyme Disease Awareness Month. And this is a scourge of a disease, and it's been declared a global epidemic. Uh, by the World Health Organization, but you wouldn't know it if you showed up at a doctor's office, particularly in Canada, complaining of Lyme disease-type symptoms, particularly chronic Lyme. Your doctor might even tell you it's all in your mind, or they might be willing to test you, but the tests they run are so arcane, so out of date, they're useless. Even if they've arrived at the conclusion that you may have chronic Lyme, they couldn't treat you properly, because if they did, they could lose your license. Huh? I mean, at this point, you might be asking yourself quite justifiably, what kind of crazy mixed-up world are we living in? Well, here to provide some much-needed clarity on the subject of chronic Lyme disease is Helki Ferry. Helki is a medical journalist and the co-author of Ending Denial, the Lyme disease epidemic. And she's also the author of Creative Outrage. Creative Outrage, a medical journalist reports on the good, the bad, and the ugly in current medicine. Helgi was born in Germany to Nazi resistance fighters and spent, and spent much of her childhood in India, where, 42 years ago, she met her husband, a Canadian doctor. Having raised a family of three biological and 12 adopted children, they now live here in Ontario with two dogs and seven cats. She holds a master's degree from the University of Toronto in physical anthropology, and uh, she runs KOS Publishing, or COS Publishing, which is dedicated to the politics of medicine. Helki Ferry, how are you? Thank you, I'm fine. Well, here we are, May again, International Lyme Disease Month, and this is your fourth annual update on what uh, we Canadians can expect when becoming infected with the world's most common tick-borne disease. I know you're hoping this is the last time, you know, you've got to, you've got to try, drive this message home. Uh, but first, we need a definition. For those uh, maybe who haven't been paying attention, what is the definition of Lyme disease? What is it, Helki? Lyme disease is one of the many diseases that are, are uh, transmitted by a tick, which is a you know a small tick that is infected, 
from uh, a previous blood meal on another animal, commonly deer, but also many others, birds and so on and so forth, especially songbirds, um, and transmits that infection into a human being if it wants to get a blood meal from a human being. And this particular infection is unusual because the main cause, the, the main bug that causes Lyme disease is called Borrelia burgdorferi after Willy Burgdorfer who identified it. He's a Swiss scientist. And um, the trouble is that it doesn't ever travel alone. It comes with many, many co-infections, all of which need to be treated, often requiring many different antibiotics in order to catch them all. Uh, and you can't eradicate the disease until you have treated the uh, main bug as well as all the bugs that travel with it. And, and, and my understanding is that this, this bacterium is kind of a, shaped like a corkscrew, so it yeah. burrows into your skin. No, no, no. The, the corkscrew, these are very small uh, entities. Uh, they don't, the, the, the tick uh, is the one that borrows into right. your skin, but it right. delivers into your bloodstream in the process of taking blood out of you, sort of like a mosquito would. Uh, in the process, it delivers these bacteria into your, into your bloodstream. It just happens to be corkscrewed, but it has nothing to do with its function. Uh, there are eight uh, corkscrew-shaped bacteria that can cause serious illness in human beings, and this is one of them. The other most famous one is syphilis. Right. Now, the interesting thing about Lyme disease, what's been discovered, is it can masquerade. Uh, it's like the great impressionist in the, uh, in the uh, infectious disease world. It can masquerade as many different diseases. Tell me about that. Well, uh, I think the reason people say masquerade at times is because it has caused such a problem to the way we diagnose diseases. When somebody comes down with multiple sclerosis, or ALS, which is uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, or um, a child is born who becomes autistic, um, <clears throat> or rheumatoid arthritis, uh, we usually used to refer to them as um, idiopathic diseases, meaning we don't know the cause. And now it turns out that one cause of those diseases is in fact Lyme, and that an infection of a particular type can dis uh, orient the entire immune system to the point where an autoimmune disease that was previously not understood in terms of its cause all of a sudden appears. And the proof of the pudding is in the treatment. If you treat these people with uh, uh, the appropriate antibiotics that are designed for treating Lyme disease, the multiple sclerosis or the rheumatoid arthritis goes away. For the child that has had its uh, development of the brain and the nervous system wrecked, while in utero of a mother who was infected with Lyme, there's nothing you can do. But all the other diseases you can. And the doctors who specialize in, uh, uh, in Lyme disease, for example, with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, they don't, um, they, when a patient comes in with symptoms of Lou Gehrig's disease, they don't even test the patient anymore. They immediately start treating them for Lyme because so far, they have not been able to find a single ALS case that was not Lyme when, when you tested the blood. Amazing. So, uh, and, and as you point out in a, the new article that you've written for Vitality magazine, Lyme disease in Canada, the never-ending story, 
which is in uh, the May edition, uh, the scientists now consider Lyme disease to be the most complex infectious diseases in the world because it causes or triggers all of these things that you That's mentioned. Right. That's exactly right. And the World Health Organization has done a lot of um, uh, information uh, work in this direction because in 2008, the World Health Organization declared Lyme a world epidemic. It now has more victims than uh, AIDS uh, and um, tuberculosis and various other ones that I have now forgotten combined. Where did it get its name, Lyme disease? Where does that name come oh, from? There's a town in uh, Connecticut in the United States on the eastern seaboard uh, called Lyme. And uh, it was the first one in which uh, Lyme was discovered when in the ni early 1970s, a whole bunch of children, more than 30, all of a sudden, uh, all of them completely unrelated to each other, came down with very serious, debilitating arthritis in their legs. And this was so sudden, and so many of them in one go, that an infection was suspected, because that's just not what happens in an autoimmune disease. You don't have a whole population affected. And rheumatoid arthritis has always been seen as, you know, as a, as a uh, it was not seen as an infectious disease. And uh, it was then a big research project was undertaken, and the result was that it was identified that indeed it was an infection. And the Swiss uh, researcher, uh, Willy Borgdorfer, was the one who identified the actual bug. And from then on forward, um, many, much research has been done on it. It's probably the most researched infectious disease in the world, uh, which showed the co-infections and many other strange, uh, unusual uh, features that this particular infection has. And so someone could go out for a walk uh, in the woods, and if they're not properly dressed, long pants and maybe pants tucked inside their socks and so forth, they get uh, bitten by a tick or a tick attaches itself to them. Uh, and... All of this can result uh, one innocent, benign stroll in the woods, and all of a sudden you could come down with ALS or rheumatoid arthritis or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. That's, that's a horrifying thought. Yeah, it's a fact. Uh, it has to be an endemic area. That's number one. Not all areas are endemic, but the, most of the research in Canada that has been done on where these bugs actually are uh, have been done by very well-known Canadian university-based researchers. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we know where the endemic areas are, and this research continues. Now, the thing is that there's a very small group of people who have an, an immunity to it. Uh, and that, that's very few, so don't, <laughs> don't count on it. Um, but if you have the good luck to be um, bitten by one of those ticks that leave a rash, which is only one or two varieties, and it's in our book, Ending Denial, there's the details on all of that from the researchers who have discovered this. If, if you're bitten by something that leaves this telltale large rash around the bite... Looks like a target. Yeah. Then you have a very good chance of being cured of this really quickly, uh, you get flu-like symptoms and that kind of thing, and you, you know, get a high fever. Sometimes you don't, but most people do if that happens to be the one that uh, bit you. And then if you're treated, 
for about three months with the appropriate antibiotic, which is not that difficult to figure out because it's all been done, right. uh, then you are fine. But if you are... The key is early detection. Listen, I, ha- listen, I have to take a time out. We'll come back, Helki, and continue to discuss this horrible scourge of a disease. Back with more of my conversation with Helki Ferry, talking about Lyme disease, right here on The Conspiracy Show. We are back with Helka Ferry, a medical journalist and the author of Ending Denial. We're talking about Lyme disease. It is Lyme Disease Month, and she has a brand new article in Vitality magazine called Lyme Disease in Canada, The Never-Ending Story. Okay, so uh, early detection obviously is the key, and if you're lucky enough to be <laughs> lucky enough uh, to be bitten uh, by a tick that uh, leaves sort of this red rash, this red target around the bite area, then you can seek immediate treatment, and uh, we, we'll, we'll get into the treatment protocols and so forth in, in a moment. But if you're not lucky enough, a fairy, to a halky, to get uh, bitten by a, a tick that leaves that red mark, you might not even know you've been infected. Is that right? That's, that's correct. And the, uh, the, 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 there are about, I think, 15 different species. And in my book, Ending Denial, I'm the co-author. I'm not the main author. I'm the editor and the co-author. The scientists who have published this information have their own articles in there in which they show which kind of ticks are distributed where and how they, what responses occur when you get bitten by them. But, of course, you could also be bitten in, underneath the hairline, let's say, and you wouldn't know because you can't feel anything. It, the, the, the target is niche. So you wouldn't know the, the, the tick that bites you releases an anesthetic at the same time. Oh, my Lord. Into the, into the victim. So it's not like a mosquito bite, which you, you know, it's really itchy. Um, yeah, that's true. But the other ones do not leave a target like, um, you know, mark that gives you an idea. But when you get recurrent uh, flu symptoms and so on, and let's say one of your knees begins to swell up, that is a particularly typical response. And you have a very, very sore knee, and it's like arthritis, but it's only one knee instead of two, which is very unusual. Um, then you should be seeking a diagnosis for Lyme. Uh, or, of course, you end up with other problems, terrific headaches and recurring, you know, that recur all the time. And if the doctor doesn't know that a differential diagnosis should include looking for such an infection, you wind up being treated with a drug for the symptom, which is symptom control. And 90% or more of all drugs that are on the market are symptom controlled and are curative. And then, of course, you get sicker and sicker and sicker because as far as the bugs are concerned, who cares whether the symptoms are controlled? They simply proliferate. And, and, and as you mentioned earlier, uh, this bacterium uh, never travels alone. There are some 30 other uh, uh, bacterium that, that, tra- that travel with it. And, and so did, can they hide in your system before making themselves sort of known? I mean, in other words, can this be latent for many years before it finally strikes you? Um, that is a question that is under a great deal of research. The little bit that we do know is if you are infected, for the first 20 to 48 hours, you have this window of opportunity to get the bugs. And if you don't get them, for whatever reason, then they begin to take up residence in your body, and more and more of them will basically take up residence in deep tissues. So then they come up in some people periodically. So, for example, very often in women, they will come up every 28 days because when a woman gets her period, uh, there are all sorts of 
immune suppressive responses going on, and that gives them an opportunity to come out. And then, of course, they have these horrific symptoms, which are not PMS. <laughs> yeah, really, really bad if you've ever seen people like that. And if the immune system is strong enough to recover to a certain extent after the period is over, they will sort of recover, but eventually the periodicity of the 28 days disappears completely and they are always sick. And then you have, you know, full-blown Lyme. So there are all sorts of opportunities that for doctors can be, you know, uh, confusing uh, if they are not trained in Lyme. This, is, this may sound like a strange question, Helki, and I ask a lot of them. Uh, but th- this Lyme disease, it, it, it almost seems to have an intelligence to it. And, and if I didn't know any better, I'd, I'd think it was designed in a lab or something. I mean... It, well, you're, you're into conspiracy. And yes. in this case, it's an open, clear-cut conspiracy. Um, in fact, it's, it's not really... There's no secret about it. There are two aspects to this disease which are well-researched and well-published and totally mainstream. Uh, anybody deny, who denies it simply has not read it. Um, The first of these two things is that we know that the Lyme bacteria, which is an old, old bacterium, okay, we know of the existence of this particular bacterium going back into fossils 50,000 years ago. So it's not a new uh, creature, as it were, but it doesn't necessarily appear everywhere, and it has a history like all other diseases. But we do know that the uh, uh, Nazi regime specifically experimented with this bug because it is disabling to populations if you have enough of these bugs to uh, distribute. And we know that the expert on this particular disease was under the uh, Operation Paperclip when the uh, Eisenhower um, administration imported all the famous Nazi scientists to the United States. Under that Operation Paperclip, the expert on Lyme disease was imported into the United States and given a huge laboratory and funds in Lyme, Connecticut. Aha. Bingo. Are we talking Plum Island? Yeah. Now, when Hillary Clinton became the Secretary of State, uh, one of her first acts in the first week of her administration then uh, was to close down that laboratory because the fear was that some of the bacteria that they had been messing around with and viruses there, this guy has long died, uh, but his research was, was real and was an actual fact, you know, paid for by the American government and so on. She closed down this thing because the uh, bugs that were still known to be there among the experimental bugs would affect the cattle of the United States. And if it, it took hold, if these things took hold in the American cattle industry, it could wipe, wipe out the entire cattle industry. So she closed it down. These are government documents. This was in the newspapers. This is, this is nothing secret. It's a fact. So we do know that there is a biological warfare basis to its arrival in North America. That's, that's one thing. The other thing is that um, we know that the insurance industry is very unhappy about this disease because the, the real conspiracy, if you like, lies in the fact that and this is also documented by FDA documentation, by public hearings. Much of that is with all of its sources in a famous book by Pamela Weintraub, who is a medical science writer and was the editor of Discover magazine and got Lyme. And she wrote a book called Cure Unknown, 
which won the highest award for medical for medical reporting uh, in the year that it was published, 2009. And Pamela Weintraub shows all the documentation and the details on the FDA hearings, from which we know that the industry, the insurance industry in the United States, made every possible effort to stop this disease from being generally treated, because it is expensive to treat and then they lose money. So in Canada, the parallel is that if we did what medical science currently knows to be true, which is to test people for this disease with correct tests, it would kind of bankrupt <laughs> OHIP or Medicare. Um, because you have to remember that what a doctor should do in accordance with the published science is the moment a patient turns up with any of these symptoms that could be put into the ca category of idiopathic diseases, of which you just mentioned some, from Parkinson's to uh, multiple sclerosis to rheumatoid arthritis, they would have to test all these people because the vast majority of them got it through Lyme. Well, do you have any a handle, are there any statistics uh, on, on the number of people uh, that are affected here in Canada? Well, we have the statistics from the, uh, um, from the CDC, which is the uh, Center for Disease Control in the United States, which also is the source for our statistics. And last year they declared that uh, annually a minimum of 300,000 people are newly infected, new cases of 300,000. That is in the regions which are not highly endemic. In the regions that are highly endemic, such as Connecticut and the neighboring small states in New England, the uh, cases are estimated to be a million new cases a year. So, so here in Canada, hazard, can you hazard a guess how, what percentage of the Canadian population has Lyme disease without even knowing it, perhaps? Uh, I, I can only hazard the guess that the CDC uses as a comparator because Canada is roughly 10% of the United States in terms of the population. And now that we know that uh, Lyme disease is not something that you can catch in warm areas, but you can catch it in Labrador and in Yellowknife. Uh, these bugs can live there just fine, particularly because they infect birds, every kind of bird, raptor birds, uh, songbirds, you name it. So because we know that, we would have to hazard the guess that is published by the CDC. In other words, 10% of that range, 300,000 to 1 million new cases a year. So 30,000 to, you know. 30,000 to 100,000 new cases a year in, in, yeah, that, in Canada. That would be a conservative guess, and that's not my opinion. No. That is the Center for Disease Control uh, examining the data. And this has been going on for, for decades. Well, when I published that book, Ending Denial, um, the impression was at that time that it would be about 30,000 new cases, and it then became a huge legal issue, and there was a big investigation by the Attorney General of Connecticut, and so on and so forth, because if people had found evidence that this was, well, plainly a lie. And uh, the CDC was then forced to bring out the statistics that they actually knew, and that is why this declaration was made about a year ago about these much higher numbers than had previously been allowed to be known. Helka Ferry is with us, and uh, she is the author of Ending Denial. We're talking about Lyme disease during what is, of course, Lyme Disease Month here in the month of May. Now, uh, Helki, let me just go back to uh, Plum Island for a second. 
Um, so is it is it your contention, or does does the research seem to indicate that uh, the bacterium responsible for Lyme disease was at Plum Island, it was being weaponized, and it escaped into the general population? That is what they think. To prove something like that uh, is uh, only possible in terms of its effects, because that it was intentionally released is extremely unlikely. But bacteria are very, um, well, (laughs) they have the upper hand on mobility and everything, so the chances of it having escaped uh, quite unintentionally are very high. There are also other ways in which it could have escaped without anybody actually knowing. For example, Willy Bergdorfer, after whom the bug is named, got the disease himself simply by the laboratory mice with whom he was experimenting with Lyme disease, having urinated on his hand. It went right through the skin. Oh, my. Oh, my. How, how... He describes this himself. This is, you can just go on the, put Willy Bergdorfer into Google and go from there. It is also in the book uh, Cure Unknown by Pamela Weintraub. Um, and he got it that way. All right, listen, I've got to jump in here again, and uh, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I want to find out why it's so difficult to get a proper uh, diagnosis and uh, almost impossible to get proper treatment here in Canada, despite the fact uh, that the World Health Organization declared Lyme disease a world epidemic in 2008. Everyone seems to know about it, but us here in Canada. Back with more of my conversation with Helky Ferry right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. It's Lyme Disease Month, and Helki Ferry is uh, with us, publisher of Vitality Magazine and the co-author and editor of Ending Denial. Now, let's, um, let's talk about the situation here in Canada, despite, as I mentioned before the break, the fact that the World Health Organization declared Lyme disease a world epidemic in 2008. And the figures are dire, let's face it, here in North America, the number of new infections every year. Why is it at this point still so difficult to get a proper diagnosis. You walk into a doctor's office and they won't even mention the word Lyme disease. It's as if they, they don't think it even exists. Well, the, um, uh, the, the, the conflict between two organizations is at the bottom of this. There is an organization called the Infectious Disease Society of America, and they are... Uh, basically, um, I suppose, in the service of the industry, meaning the uh, insurance industry. This is also not my guess, but it is based on FDA public hearings and on large reports that have dealt with these conflicts of interest in great detail and even resulted in a legal investigation and so on. Uh, You can get all of this out of uh, Pamela Weintraub's book, my book, with all the sources that prove it. So the IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of uh, America, takes takes whatever uh, the industry tells them to do. It's that simple. They will not, they will simply pretend that the, and they do pretend in their guidelines, for example, which are now defunct, but are still being cited, they do pretend that there is no information uh, online that is, you know, what I just told you, and that there is no, they just downplay the numbers, they downplay the uh, virulence of the infection, and they simply will not recognize, they simply won't discuss anything that has to do with the research that shows that it can cause all these very serious 
um, other diseases that we didn't have a cause for before. Um, I'm not suggesting that multiple sclerosis is caused only by Lyme. I'm just saying that's one cause we know of, okay? And it's the same with all the other diseases. Now, there's also an organization called ILATS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And ILATS is international, and they have done all this massive research on, uh, on Lyme, uh, which shows all the other things that we know, and they are the basis for the investigations that the CDC finally had to make, and they are the basis for the um, law that was recently passed, the omnibus bill, um, under the guidance of Congressman uh, Wolf, uh, which requires now that the American government has to take this very, very seriously. Yes, only after President Bush, former President Bush, contracted the disease himself. That's how it began. That's how it began. That's true. And he contracted the disease. It's sexually transmissible. And his wife did too. And he was very lucky that he was in the hands of an eyelids doctor who immediately suspected Lyme because, after all, the man has a great big ranch in Texas. And the Lone Star Tech is the one that transmits, in Texas, transmits Lyme. And Bush, of course, had this horrible experience, and it was educational for him, and he directed Congress to get started on this problem. Uh, so that was a very good thing for him to do, and it was quite successful. But recently, of course, Bush is no longer president. We, you know, time goes on. And recently, the Obama administration has proceeded with some real action on Lyme. Um, but the difficulty is that you have... A medical organization that purports to be the voice on infectious diseases and simply ignores anything that is unpleasant or expensive for the insurance industry. And as you say, up here in Canada, uh, if uh, they were to test properly for Lyme disease, that would op open up a whole can of worms and it could bankrupt uh, the uh, the uh, the healthcare system up here. Yeah, well, the healthcare system is in trouble anyway because if you don't treat this. Exactly. Uh, you wind up with all these people who have all these dreadful diseases from Alzheimer's to, to uh, multiple sclerosis, and uh, they end up with very expensive wheelchairs and treatment and so on and so forth. So it's a very short-sighted policy. In fact, it's absolutely crazy. Pay me now or pay me later. Okay, we'll take a quick time out and come back. Uh, and uh, I also uh, want to talk about proper, uh, the proper treatment protocol and whether that's available in Canada. I'm guessing probably not. Back with more of my conversation with Helky Ferry as we discuss Lyme disease right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Helky Ferry stays with us for a few moments yet as we discuss Lyme disease. Now, here's uh, something that uh, is absolutely frightening. Uh, and again, uh, people can read about this in your uh, new article in Vitality magazine, Lyme Disease in Canada, The Never-Ending Story. It can be transmitted through, the, uh, through uh, blood donations. Um, <clears throat> the problem with blood donations, first of all, the sexual transmission is the most serious. And that has now been proven because every sample taken of semen and every sample taken of vaginal fluids of people who have this disease contained live uh, live Lyme bacteria. That's, that's now published. So there's no ifs, ases, and buts on that. And in, in terms of infectious disease policy anywhere in the world, a disease that is transmitted sexually, is, uh, it doesn't get any worse, okay? The blood supply is nothing by comparison to a sexually transmissible disease. So Lyme is, in a very real way, quite literally, the syphilis of the 21st century. Mm. So this is important. Now, the blood supply is a different story. It, it is true when we met with the blood supply people, the Canadian Blood Services had a 
very fancy meeting in which they invited all of us people who are working with Lyme um, <clears throat> to discuss things with them over fancy food and nothing happened. Um, it is true, and it was published in the flagship journal called Transfusion, that Lyme bacteria survive in blood just fine, thank you. However, because of their periodicity of behavior, meaning they sometimes lie in deep tissues, and this, the Japanese researchers have proven that they come out of the deep tissues in what is known in mathematics as a sine wave, in a very predictable, um, mathematically known formula. Now, if somebody donates blood at the time that the stuff is in the deep tissues, they would not be delivering any dangerous um, materials into the blood system, unless they have all sorts of um, what is known as uh, co-infections, and among them, Babesia and Bartonella are the most famous and equally serious infections, and those, have, the literature is full of examples of how people have donated blood and then other people who got the blood became sick with Babesia or, or Babiosis, as it's called, and then that has to be treated and you're very, very ill. These are very serious infections and they are the classic co-infections of Lyme. So what this amounts to is we have no patient in the record, in the, in the scientific record, who has the disease, the Lyme disease per se, meaning the Burkdorferi bacterium found in there from a transfusion. But we have lots of them who have the co-infections. But because those co-infections are never by themselves, but always come with Lyme, you should do something about it with the blood services. You should not allow people to give blood who have had Lyme or who have uh, any potential of having it. This is not difficult to do. The American blood services have a very detailed questionnaire that every donor has to go through. And the, anybody who is even vaguely, potentially, you know, infected or could have been infected in the past and is now dormant, uh, by any of these bugs that are co-infections, including the Lyme bacterium itself, cannot donate. But in Canada, we don't have that. And again, do you suspect it's because they don't want to admit that it exists because that would open this can of worms and they'd have to start testing? No, they don't have enough blood. They don't have enough we blood. Have to, we have to import blood from the United States. We just don't have enough, and it would just sort of shut down the system if you had to be that careful. But now, of course, it's all going to be coming out because Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party, put forward a Lyme disease policy bill in the federal government, which has gone through second reading and has now gone to committee, and I'm glad to report, was supported by all members of all parties. Aha, some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, but uh, it's still a very long tunnel. <laughs> indeed, yes. And is that a light at the end of the tunnel or is that an oncoming train? No, I think it's definitely a light because it is extremely well worded. Okay. And uh, she was uh, she made a real point of saying that our book ending denial. She says that in the in Hansard, in the proceedings of the debate in the House of Commons, that that was the source that she yes. used because it contained all the scientific material that could not be contested. Yes, but before we can our chickens, let's not forget that we have an election coming up in probably about a year and a half. These things, these ten things, often tend to get tabled, and then they're never seen or heard from again. But I hope I'm wrong. Uh, help. You know, once you get started on this, it won't go away, because Lyme disease is just so overwhelming that it won't go away. Uh, whether it gets uh, passed into law now or with after the next election, that doesn't even phase me, because I know that there's simply too much ground support for this. Now, let's talk about treatment. What is the proper uh, treatment protocol? 
for someone who has a Lyme disease and, and didn't catch it early? Well, we've published several treatment protocols because there are people, for example, who cannot tolerate uh, heavy-duty um, antibiotic treatment or long-term antibiotic treatment if they have chronic Lyme. Uh, there are people who uh, respond particularly well to different kinds of treatment. This is all in the published literature. Uh, I would say there's at least half a dozen excellent, well-documented treatment protocols, uh, sometimes intravenous, sometimes by mouth. It depends on the age. It depends on what other problems you've got. Uh, it is treatable. If it is treated in the early stages, it's not a big deal. Once it becomes chronic, it is a big deal. But even then, it can be treated. And in Canada, infectious disease doctors have no training in it at all. You mentioned in your article, published this month in Vitality magazine, that there are some doctors in Canada who know about Lyme disease, who know how to treat it. But if they were to treat it, they could lose their license. Well, they do lose their license quite often. In British Columbia, for example, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which controls the licenses of doctors in that province, they even had a, a specific proviso forbidding any doctor in British Columbia, in their, a member of their college, to even test for it with the Canadian tests, which are close to useless and will only detect a certain type of uh, Lyme infection if it, by, by pure luck. They even forbade testing for it. Well, that's against the Hippocratic Oath, isn't it? That's not just against the Hippocratic Oath. It's against a lot of things. Yes, it's just criminal. Yes. Now, that has stopped because the, when they had their most recent election, well, in 2010 they had an election, um, the, the, the incoming government basically told the college to cut the nonsense, and they did. How about here in Ontario? In Ontario, we don't have that kind of forbidding doctors what to do. It's more pernicious. Uh, so a doctor who treats particularly chronic Lyme will be pursued or has been pursued so far by the CPSO, the College of Physicians in Ontario, for the same reason that I mentioned earlier, because the College of Physicians and Surgeons explicitly aligns themselves with the policies, not the science, but the policies of the IDSA, which protects the insurance industry. So if you if you happen to go to the international conferences of ILADS, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, uh, they simply say, well, you know, uh, uh, our view on Lyme is whatever, and that's the end of it. And you, yeah, you will actually lose your license. I know several doctors who have, and I know quite a few doctors who treat them secretly. They treat them secretly. In other words, the files are not in the office in case the college decides to, on a hearsay or something, go after a doctor and find out whether they're treating Lyme. So they take the files home, uh, and uh, they even treat them at home. Well, those doctors are heroes. Yes, they are indeed. Um, but on the other hand, um, I have to enter a mild criticism here. We have 26,000 doctors approximately registered with the CPSO, and if the infectious disease doctors were to say to the CPSO, okay, guys, this is it. We know what the science is, and we are going to treat patients, cut it out. It would be over in 10 minutes. It's all about the insurance. Well, it's just a matter of the membership saying enough of this crap. Right. Yeah. But that's what's holding it back. It's the insurance. Well, it's, what's holding it back is this fight between the IDSA and ILADS and people aligning themselves arbitrarily with what is convenient instead of what is based on science. And, of course, it's also a matter of <clears throat> ignorance, because 
if this has been kept under wraps for so long, how is an infectious disease doctor to know what to do? A good example is Hospital for Sick Children, where a group of doctors became really angry with this entire scene in Lyme and wrote a fantastic article called A Twist of Lyme uh, in the Journal of Microbiology, in which they described this fiasco with our silly tests, which don't even test for the Lyme bugs, the, the Lyme varieties that are in Canada, which are specific to our environment. Uh, so you can't, you can't actually get a proper test in Canada. You just can't. Uh, it doesn't exist, and so, Health Canada admits it. So what if, if someone listening right now suspects they may have Lyme disease or a loved one has Lyme disease, what do they do? Get the hell out of the country? Go to the U.S.? Get tested? Um, there are several things you can do. One is uh, you can go onto a website called CanLyme, like Canada CanLyme, and they will help you find a doctor. They can contact me. I will tell them exactly where they can find what and what they can expect. Um, and they can get proper tests and they can get proper treatment, but they will have to go to the States or find themselves a vet because the veterinarians in Canada are properly trained in Lyme disease. Oh, a vet, a veterinarian, yeah, an, animal. an animal doctor. Because they're properly trained in dealing with Lyme. Oh, my word. You have to go to an, a veterinarian to get a proper diagnosis and treatment for oh, Lyme disease. If, if, if you go there he, and your dog was, for example, found to have Lyme, he, he will treat you, the ones that do. They are heroes, too. They will treat you under the name of the dog because they're not allowed to treat humans. That's going on in this province? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but if I get a call, for example, from someone who suspects it or who has been told by their doctor, oh, there's no Lyme in Canada, which is complete nonsense because the CMAJ, which is Canada's flagship journal, Canadian Medical Association Journal, has been publishing the... Uh, facts on how, where it is endemic and how many people are getting it and how they're getting it and all the rest of it since 1995. So theoretically, every practicing doctor in Canada should be reading the flagship journal on medical <laughs> on medicine in Canada. One would hope. MAJ, but apparently it doesn't seem to do so mm. because very few infectious disease doctors are at all uh, trained in it. And I got a letter from Dr. Anne Doig, who was the president of the Canadian Medical Association in 2010, and she thanked us for the copy of this book and said we have to start a teaching program so that infectious disease doctors and GPs and everybody knows something about this. But nothing happened. But if, if uh, Elizabeth May's bill becomes law, that is part of the provisions of that bill, then of course it would happen and there wouldn't be any way out. They would get all this education. But in the meantime, if you want to be treated, you go to the States or to Europe. And if they want to get a hold of you, Helki, how do they do that? They go into Google and put in Helkaferi and contact me, or they go on my website, helkaferi.com, and contact me, or they phone me up. I'm in the phone book. Helkaferi. Lyme is the first place you should go because that is an organization designed to help patients find treatment. And I am someone who happens to know something about it and know, knows doctors and knows the system, so I can tell you what to do. But yeah, you have to pay for it yourself. Yes, you have to get the treatment in the United States, and no, our Canada, our Canadian um, medical system does not support people with this because most infectious disease doctors know literally nothing about it. Helgi, thank you so much for your time, and uh, let's hope we have better luck uh, and better news this time next year. Thank you very much. Helga Ferry, Vitality Magazine, and uh, the book is Ending Denial. 
All right. My website, the portal to The Conspiracy Show, is richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home and allowing me into your head. And thank you, as always, for your ears and your voices. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Here's an interesting story I've just posted to richardserrett.com, and it's entitled, 16 Signs You Are a Slave to the Matrix. You pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. <laughs> Bang in at uh, number one uh, on the um, website, uh, which is wake, wakingtimes.com. Wakingtimes.com, and the webmaster who posted this or wrote this is a staff writer who goes by the name of Dr. Sigmund Fraud. So, uh, number one, you uh, you pay taxes to people you'd like to see locked up in jail. Uh, number two, you work hard doing something you hate to earn fiat dollars. Work is important and money does pay the bills. However, so many people lose the best years of their lives doing things they hate just for money. The truth about money today is that we do not have money but instead inflationary fiat currency that is privately owned and manipulated. Ain't that the truth? Uh, and one more. Of these 16 signs, you are a slave to the matrix. You don't have anything to hide from total surveillance. Have you ever caught yourself saying this or heard someone else say this? Well, if you have nothing to hide, why are you worried about total surveillance? If it does not bother you that someone, somewhere, working for somebody is watching you, listening to your conversations, and monitoring your movements, then you are a good slave to the matrix. Invisible surveillance is an insidious form of thought control, and by using the logic of, I have nothing to hide, therefore it will do me no harm to be surveilled, then you are mindlessly admitting that you have an earthly master and are not of sovereign mind and body. Anyway, great piece compiled by a staff writer at wakingtimes.com who goes by the name of Sigmund Fraud. <laughs> anyway, once again, posted that to richardserrett.com and I've tweeted it as well, at Richard Serrett. Make sure when you visit richardserrett.com that you register. It's quick and easy, and once I get to that magic number, 500 subscribers, I'll start sending out a weekly newsletter. But I won't do it until we get to at least 500 so if you haven't already done so, please register richardserrett.com. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will be along later in the hour for our paranormal news roundup. Some remarkable stories in the paranormal news arena, uh, including some rather chilling video footage taken from what appears to be a security surveillance camera uh, in which someone is accosted, uh, in fact knocked down by a rather shadowy-looking figure and then dragged down the corridor. So very anxious to get Rosemary's take on that. And uh, scientists are heralding a new vampire therapy as a means of reversing the aging process. Vampire therapy. What, pray tell, is that? Uh, and wait till you hear about the living mummies of Japan, all up and coming on The Conspiracy Show when Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us a little bit later. Hey, uh, you know, you read the newspaper, you look at what's going on around the world, and you've probably thought to yourself, is this world run by psychopaths? I know I think that all the time. Uh, and it, the question is, is the reason 
that there's so much sorrow and suffering in the world due to, is it natural causes or is it because a small percentage of the population that have some peculiar mental illness have taken control of our society? There's a, a video I saw recently online that's getting a lot of attention, and it's a mini-documentary on how we can defend ourselves against psychopaths. In fact, that's the title, Defense Against Psychopaths. And uh, it's, it's offered, as the name implies, as a defense strategy for personal safety. The video also shows the logical consequences these psychopaths have on society as a whole. Uh, and it shows psychopaths not just as the uh, sort of stereoty- stereotypical insane serial killers seen in the movies. Uh, but this is the most disturbing part. The psychopaths really might be your boss your church leader, God forbid, and even your political leader. Could it be a malevolent, all of these people rather, uh, political leaders, bosses, church leaders, they could all be malevolent and heartless predators, psychopaths. Uh, The filmmaker is with us right now, and his name is Stefan Verstappen. He's the creator of this video documentary entitled Defense Against a Psychopath, which is based on the first chapter of his book, The Art of Urban Survival. Defense Against the Psychopath is a how-to instructional video that explains the types, characteristics, modus operandi of the most ruthless predators on the planet. Stefan is a a writer, a martial arts expert, and, uh, as I say, the author of uh, a number of books, including The Art of Urban Survival. Hey, Stefan, how are you? I'm fine, Richard. Thanks for having me on. You know, it's interesting that this week is actually uh, Emergency Preparedness Week. And last week on the program, I, uh, I spoke with um, Michael Malouf, uh, who wrote a book on what he sees the likelihood of an impending EMP event, electromagnetic uh, pulse event, which could knock power grids off uh, around the continent. We could be offline, freezing in the dark for years, possibly, and all of the social unrest that obviously would ensue. And And then I spoke with Stan Deo, who is a, an emergency preparedness uh, expert, talking about preparing for, for natural uh, disasters and even man-made disasters like a, a, an EMP that could be caused by a, a detonation of a nuclear device at a high altitude. Uh, but the, the first chapter... In your book, The Art of Sur- uh, Urban Survival, uh, talks about something that we, we don't necessarily think of trying, you know, defending ourselves against, and that is the psychopath, defense against the psychopath. How did you, how did you, uh, you know, begin thinking about this as sort of a, a societal threat that we should all be dealing with? Well, it was uh, when I was writing my second, or uh, my, my latest book, The Art of Urban Survival, and I broke down, it, you know, my, I intended to write this as the ultimate self-defense and survival guide for people living in the big city. I was a martial arts instructor for a number of years. I, I'd lived in China. I'd studied Kung Fu all over Asia. And uh, when I came back to Canada, I was teaching martial arts, you know, in the evenings. And, and you're often requested for a self-defense course. And so I would teach a self-defense course, but to be honest with you, if you found yourself in a dark alley having to use self-defense techniques against an attacker, you failed. 
you've failed three times already. You failed in strategy. You failed in spotting the trouble and evading it. You failed in escaping it, and you failed in thinking your way out of it. To me, violence against violence is absolutely the last resort anybody should have to uh, resort to in defending themselves. But what I couldn't teach in a self-defense class, which is, you know, focused on, obviously, on kicking and punching and things like that, what I couldn't focus on is something that we've all heard before, and that, was, and that is called street smarts. Um, to be aware of your surroundings, to know how things work and how predators work, that knowledge will, will, will save you in more cases than learning how to punch or kick will ever sell, uh, save you. But how to teach that? So I began by you know, giving handouts to my class on, on strategies that I had learned when I researched my first book, which is called The uh, 36 Strategies of Ancient China which is a book very similar to The Art of War by Sun Tzu and uh, lists a bunch of ancient uh, Chinese strategies and tactics and historical anecdotes that illustrate those. So strategy and tactics is a very important thing to learn, but I couldn't teach that because when you learn strategy and tactics for the city, what you are learning is really street smarts. So I began writing The Ultimate survival guide for, you know, uh, people in, living in the big city. And I broke down the threats that you would face living in the urban jungle, and it is a jungle. It's the same as the Amazon jungle or the Congo or the Malaysian rainforest. We cannot escape nature, and so even though we're not out in the woods, we still have to follow the rules of nature. And the city is in itself a type of jungle. It's an environment. Maybe even more dangerous, because I would, I would argue, uh, Stefan, that at least out in the wilderness, uh, animals are creatures of habit. They are more or less predictable. But well, a psychopath <laughs> is, I would, I don't know, you disabuse me of this, I would say, you know, somewhat unpredictable. Well, you hit the nail right on the head, Richard, and that is that our environment is more dangerous. You're more likely to get... Um, to die in the big city than you are if you were to go into the Amazon rainforest. So the first thing that you need to know is what are the predators of our jungle? You know, if you go into the, in, in, uh, if you go camping up north, you know to be aware of the black bears and, and there's precautions and things you can do. And, and of course, the incidence of black bear attacks on campers here in Ontario is very minimal, maybe once every 15 years. So your chances of being attacked by a predator in the woods, in the wilderness of northern Ontario, is very slim. But your chances of being attacked by a predator in the city is very high. As a matter of fact, we are being attacked and abused daily by predators. We just don't know it. And so what is the premier predator, the apex predator within the human society? And that predator is the psychopath. And I came across the psychopath from uh, researching my first book, The 36 Strategies, because to illustrate the principles of these strategies, I wanted to give readers a historical true story, you know, a short story that, right, right. that uh, explains how this famous general, whether it was a Chinese emperor or a Japanese shogun, how he used that strategy and how he succeeded. But I'm reading all these stories, and... I was originally going to include Roman history and English history and things like that. So I, I began reach, researching Roman and, and European history and, and Greek history. And 
reach, researching the great generals, the great strategists, you know, Alexander the Great and, and uh, uh, well, uh, Hannibal and uh, Africanus and... Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, you know, <clears throat> until I realized while I was researching this, and I was also thinking about doing maybe a little book on leadership, too, because I'm reading about all these, you know, famous historical leaders. What can they teach me about leadership? So I'm keeping an eye out for leadership techniques as well. And I realized, I came to an, a conclusion with myself that I would not make a good leader. I do not have what it takes to be, ever become a king or, or a prince or lead an army because I do not have that streak of cruelty, that indifference to human suffering that all these characters had. I mean, you read the stories of, of their lives and the, the suffering they caused and the numbers of people that they murdered and the torture and the bloodshed, it, it boggles the mind over 2,000 years of history and always the same pattern, Richard, the same pattern. You know, right, right. these people, what, were they all separated at birth? <laughs> you know, no, they're the same. So what is that pattern? And, and, and why is it that people with this psychological behavior system always manage to become the emperors and the kings? And, right. And why do the psychopaths rise to the top? Why do they rise to the top? Well, you know, the biggest the big breakthrough came for me when I read Robert Hare's famous book, um, Without Conscience. And, of course, Robert Hare is a Canadian researcher based out of uh, British Columbia, and he wrote the seminal book, the most modern, up-to-date book, on the psychopath. And he is the first one to dispel the myth that psychopaths are all serial killers and, and locked up behind bars when they're not serial killing. He brought us the awareness that psychopaths probably make up the majority population of leaders within our society. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so, and when reading the history as well, you know, it, it, time and time you can see the same uh, uh, strategy, the same advantage that these people have played over and over. For example, if there's a, a dynastic dispute and two brothers are vying for the throne, well, guess who gets to become king? It's the brother who first commits um, murder on his own brother. Actually. Richard III, uh, as an example. I mean, Shakespeare's plays are, are littered with, with these uh, psychopaths. And Exactly. You know, so me, could I murder my brother? I, it, the thought would never occur to me. I would not, and even if I could, I would never be able to live with myself and show my face. You know, most of us couldn't contemplate uh, those types of actions. Right. We all tend to think of, of the psychopaths, the obvious ones, like Hitler, like Stalin. Uh, but today, they wear Armani suits. Uh, you know, they don't uh, uh, march around in jackboots and, and uh, uh, you know, aren't, aren't readily apparent necessarily. They're very, they can be very charming and, and have all the outward appearances of being a good person. And yet, somewhere deep what was it Carl Jung said about, you know, the bigger the one sort of uh, um, the outward appearance of goodness, maybe the, the greater the, 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 the dark shadow that resides within? Yes, I know, exactly. Let um, me take a, a time out here, uh, Stefan, and we'll uh, come back and continue to talk about defense against the psychopath, writer, adventurer, and preparedness expert Stefan Verstappen, the author of The Art of Urban Survival, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. 
So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Stefan Verstappen, a Toronto-based writer, preparedness expert, adventurer, and author of The Art of Urban Survival. The first chapter of that book is Defense Against the Psychopath, which has been turned into an, a how-to instructional video uh, that has gone viral online. And uh, let, let's um, just back up a minute. What is there a, a clinical definition of a psychopath? And, and what's the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath? Well, first of all, the difference between psychopath and sociopath is pretty blurred. And I personally don't make a difference in my writing with that. Um, and a lot of the other researchers on, on psychopath or psychopathy um, don't um, really differentiate too much. It used to mean, and in some versions it means, a sociopath is more likely to have a large criminal or a long criminal record, and a uh, psychopath would tend to be uh, uh, without a criminal record, meaning they're more professional and they're able to escape the consequences. But the two, you know, it's, a, it's really a matter of semantics, and uh, the important thing to understand is the, the chief characteristics that they all exhibit, whether you want to call them a psychopath or a sociopath or a pathological narcissist or antisocial personality disorder. There's all kinds of descriptives used to describe basically an essential condition, and that condition is that these people feel no empathy. They do not have an emotional connection with other human beings. And so because of that, they're in a sense very powerful because the inhibitions that the rest of us feel and labor under, they don't have. They can, are free to lie and cheat and uh, manipulate and steal and rob. It doesn't bother them. They don't get nervous about doing that. If you and I were to say, think about, geez, you know, should I take home a, a tablet of paper from the office? We already start to get nervous because, you know, we're pilfering office supplies. All I, right. You know, I wouldn't do it. Personally, I don't. I wouldn't steal a, a pen from the office because my guilty feelings isn't worth the goddamn pen. Or, or should I? Should I lie uh, about my the, 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 the person that I'm running against uh, in the municipal election uh, and slander that person in order to further my own political ambitions? Well, exactly, exactly. So if you don't have any inhibitions about that you become a very convincing liar. And then the more outrageous you lie, the more people will believe you because normal people would think to themselves, good God, if this guy was lying, he would be so over the top, he would have to you know, sweat or be nervous or betray, uh, betray some telltale yes. uh, tick that would tell you he's lying. Isn't it, didn't Himmler, was it Himmler? Or, no, I think it was Joseph Goebbels who said, that, you know, the bigger the lie, the more likely people are to believe it. Yeah, I meant, I, that's a great quote. I think you're right with, the, with Himmler. I think it was him. And uh, I think he paraphrased somebody else, too, about that. But, uh, yeah, that, that's, it's true, because why, why would you believe the bigger lie instead of the smaller lie? The reason is that all of us will tell small lies. I, too, I, I, I lie as well. You know, somebody says, geez, does this jacket look good on me? You know, yeah, it looks great, wonderful, you know. Um, so small little white lies, we all tell. We have to. It's part of our, you know, uh, our social interaction. And, and there's no harm done because nobody's being disadvantaged by our lies and deception. However, and so when somebody does tell a small lie, 
we are more willing to believe that they're lying because they're telling a small lie. We tell small lies, so we're able to believe that. However, when uh, or able to not believe it. However, when somebody tells a big lie, we could not ourselves feel comfortable with that level of deception. And so we would feel nervous. And so therefore, if somebody tells us that huge a lie and they do not seem nervous, uh, well, we tend to believe it. You right, know, how, right. How, how could they say that if it wasn't true? Okay, we, we talked about lack of empathy. Uh, what are some of the, uh, the other characteristics of a psychopath? And we won't have time maybe to get to touch on all of them in detail, but let's just uh, name them. Well, lack of remorse. You know, so without empathy, they have no guilt feelings, and so there's nothing to keep them up at night. You know, um, I once gave some advice to a young man about something, and it ended up costing him $200 he didn't need to spend. To this day, that was 30 years ago. I still feel bad that I gave him that wrong advice. And it cost them 200 bucks. Now, these psychopaths will engage in activities that doesn't just cost people a couple of hundred bucks. will cost thousands of people their lives. That will destroy tens of thousands of families driven to poverty, diff- driven to suicide, drug addiction, uh, divorce. And, and that night they go to sleep, doesn't bother them. It's like nothing ever happened. And they can do that day after day. And they sleep fine. They, they still go to the store. They have a, a healthy appetite in the morning when they wake right. up. They'll have right. extra bacon with their eggs. You know, and they you justify want, it. The, the ends justify the means. Exactly. And the ends is to get what they want. Right. That is the end. And so as so long as they get what they want, any means is justified. Or in the political arena, it's for the greater good. Well, that's the story they tell us. Of course, for the psychopath right. in the political arena... It's for their greater good. And that's why psychopaths tend to rise to the tops of, of, of social structures. Whatever social structure that would be, if there is a hierarchy, right. then the sociopath will tend to rise. Because, for example, I, I, I was walked into the office about six months ago, and um, my sales manager, he said, I said to my sales manager, I said, you know, I could have your job in three days if I wanted to. And he said, What? I said, simple. I said, well, I would plant some cocaine in your desk drawer. Then I would upload some child porn to your computer when you weren't looking. Then I'd go rat you out to the boss. I said, you tried denying the cocaine in your desk drawer and the child porn on your computer. I said, I'll have your job in three days. There you go. Hey, that's how Lyndon Johnson ran his political campaigns. <laughs> yeah, that's how they all run their political campaign. That's why they have all these parties where they're all snorting coke and, and, and watching child porn, or worse, the pedophilia rings. That's why they do it. Well, but you Johnson, know? I mean, perfected that. I mean, he brought it to an art form. He would throw out these outlandish lies about uh, one of his political opponents in Texas, and his campaign manager would say, you can't say that. He never, he never did that. He said, it doesn't matter. I just want to hear him deny it. Exactly. You know, uh, uh, the psychopath, it's often said, is the person that will slap you in the face, then run to the teacher and cry that he was attacked. Oh, devious. Absolutely And so devious. when you gum, come there to say, wait a minute, he slapped me in the face, who's going to believe you? No, the psychopath was already there, bawling his eyes out with a good story about how you attacked him. There so, also, so the, there, there's an, an element of, of I mean, the, there's, there's intelligence behind the deviousness. Well, there is, you know, there is, Richard... Uh, in the video I describe, and, and from what I, my research, is that psychopathy is like somebody that has, you know, lost a limb. So they will be lost that part, that component of their being that makes them human. They just really don't have it. But all the other factors that determine a, a, a human are still in place. So in other words, 
you can have genius psychopaths and you can have stupid psychopaths. You can have uh, um, creative psychopaths and you can have uh, sadistic, uh, masochistic psychopaths and everything in between. So there are some very smart psychopaths and even the stupid psychopath has an advantage over good and honest people, even people that are smarter than them, because even though you might be smarter than, than one of these psychopaths, you're um, misunderstanding of what they are is their advantage. The fact that you don't know what they are and how they operate puts you at such a disadvantage that even if you are, you know, 20 points smarter on the IQ scale than some average psychopath, they will still be able to fool you and trick you. You know what's really tragic is, in, in, in a sense, because these psychopaths rise to the top, uh, we're all, as a society, somewhat responsible because we allow the rules of the game that, that determines who is successful and who is not successful and who becomes the president or the prime minister. I mean, we're responsible for those rules in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, so we're allowing this to happen. Well, you know, that's true, and I've heard that argument before, and I'm on both sides of the argument. The first facet, or the first part of that argument is that, or, or, or in laying the blame for the condition of society, is that the rest of us have to assume responsibility for following evil people around. You know, we do have to, you know, admit that our support of these political leaders and, and, and business leaders and our support of companies and, and purchasing products and going to certain stores and things, we support a psychopathic agenda by doing so. And we are therefore equally responsible for all the ills in the world. However, I want to forgive my fellow man to a certain degree because we are not fully human beings anymore. We are like a dog that has been beaten and kept in a cage. And what happens to a dog when you beat them and keep them in the cage is they become vicious and they become paranoid and they, they, you know, they tremble in the corner and they're fearful and they're pathetic creatures. And that's what's happened to us as a species. The psychopaths have been in charge for so long, starting off with the whole, you know, priesthood and the, and the kingship system with the whole, you know, the royal bloodline, whatever the hell that meant, why people would die for some genetic psychopathic family line is beyond my comprehension. But that's what went on for 2,000 years. But what the result is that we were never given a full chance to bloom or, or to grow into fully mature spiritual human beings because we were, from the day we were born, conditioned and programmed and beaten and trained and conditioned to accept psychopaths as our leaders and to admire psychopathic values. So, how, uh, in, the, in the couple minutes that remain, how do we defend against the psychopath? Let's bring it down to a, a, a level that we can all appreciate, and that's the boss who has the corner office, the big desk, the window, uh, his own uh, you know, executive assistant. And he, we know that that person got there because they're a psychopath. They lied, they cheated, uh, they bullied. How do we defend against that? Well, the best defense is to run away. It's really hard to fight a, a, a psychopath, and especially one that's in a position of power like that. There's a saying in, in, in Sun Tzu that writes that you don't, the, the secret to success is you never fight a battle you can't win. And fighting the boss in the corner office is a battle you cannot win. Unless you are so devious and ruthless 
that you can compete with them. In other words, if you can fake evidence against them and you can blackmail them and you can uh, uh, set them up and frame them for something, or if you are really charming and you can somehow convince the board of directors or the shareholders or whoever's above the boss that, and make a substantial case for that person being a psychopath and having him removed, you're not going to win. And those two options, they're not open for people. They just aren't, you know, it, it just, it, you have to be too hard to pull that off. Your best bet, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is to uh, start sending out your resume and as soon as you get a better job offer, get the hell out. Okay, but let's now assume that the psychopath is the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> no names. <laughs> Courts, uh, coke snorting and uh, crack smoking. Yeah, part of the, you know, a psychopath's uh, uh, list of things to do, you know. Um, I mean, you could say you could defeat them at the ballot box, but the, the odds are that the person that they're running against must have a little bit of that streak, too, because... That's Absolutely. where they, you know, they didn't get there by being the nice guy either. No, exactly. You know, we're, that's why I say we're in a bad situation. We cannot take them on directly right now. Not in this point in our history. We can't. The only thing we can do as citizens of this country is the opposite of what the psychopaths want. So what do they want? They want you to be mindless, obedient slaves. So think for yourself. For God's sakes, research everything. Learn. Never take anybody's word for it. Never follow charismatic leaders. You are the leader. Like, you know, it's like the Terminator. You are the revolution. You are the resistance. Everybody themselves. Think for yourself. That's, that's all there's to it. Don't follow leaders. That's a great, uh, great piece of advice. It's, you know, the, you, you confront the big grizzly bear in the woods, just back away slowly. Stefan Verstappen, author of The Art of Urban Survival and Defense Against the Psychopath. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. Richard, I'm so glad that you had me on. I've been a big fan, and uh, keep up the good work. Appreciate it, Stefan. Thank you. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a roundup of paranormal news here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, and she joins us once a month right here on The Conspiracy Show. Rosemary, how are you? I'm doing well, Richard, getting ready for a very busy uh, summer on the road, lots of major events coming up. New books coming out, always something in the works. Excellent. Well, that's good to know. Busy is good. Listen, uh, it's time for our, our paranormal news roundup, and I wanted to start uh, with uh, this one I thought was right down your alley, having you having written, written a, uh, a major encyclopedic work on vampires. Uh, we're hearing now about this new vampire therapy, which could reverse aging, according to scientists. What do you make of that story? There's quite a lot to it, actually. It's very interesting to see science and folklore merging in this regard, because from a folklore perspective and folk magic perspective, blood has always had the power to rejuvenate. And, uh, of course, the, the vampire uh, in many mythologies takes the life force through energy or through blood in order to sustain some sort of physical life or presence after death. Uh, there are many... Uh, customs as well in uh, societies around the world to consume the blood of enemies, for example, in order to imbibe their characteristics, their strength, their wisdom, their courage, their valor. 
And so we have uh, indications that people have always intuitively felt that drinking blood would bring benefit to the body. And so now here we have science saying that the blood of the young could benefit the elderly by rejuvenating the body in some way. So uh, it's a very interesting convergence of beliefs. Uh, but that potentially opens up with just a, an an enormous moral and ethical quagmire, doesn't it? I mean, uh, the elderly need the blood of the young. I mean, what do we do with this information? I mean, what what are the applications here? I I know. Is there going to be a future where all of us, as we get into aging, we're going to become vampires in a way, you know, seek out uh, blood transfusions? Are young people going to be encouraged to make blood donations in order to uh, to keep the elderly healthy, or there may even be some monetary things to consider. When when you look at the costs of caring for uh, aging people and for the diseases and conditions that occur as we age, uh, would there be pressure um, from society, from uh, governments, from the healthcare system uh, to uh, to cause young people to uh, to pony up on a regular basis? There could be a lot of moral and ethical issues here. This is a very interesting development. I just had this horrible image of uh, some octogenarian, you know, filing his uh, dentures into a pointy, to a set of pointy fangs and attacking young school children. It's just, it's too horrible <laughs> to think about. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing well, actually, about it. Well, we'll probably, probably just line up for the, uh, the infusion, uh, you know, like, uh, like you would donate blood. You'd be on the under end of it. You'd be getting it. Uh, but still, it's, um, it, it's some interesting developments in science that um, put some validity to ancient folklore beliefs and also pose some very interesting ethical questions for the future. Um, so I think we'll have to see what bears out in the research. Mary, Queen of Scots, was she not uh, known as Bloody Mary? Was she not the one who would actually bathe in the blood of, uh, of young, of young uh, virgins or whatever the case was? Well, that famous case was Elizabeth Bathory from ah. Europe, and she lived in the 1500s, but she did believe that. Uh, and the story goes, and a lot of it's legend, but there is some fact to it, that uh, as she got older and started to lose her beauty, she uh, discovered that, um, or she felt at least, that blood splashed on her skin seemed to have a rejuvenating effect to it. So. Uh, the legend goes that, that she started bathing in blood, and she needed more and more blood, and she required the blood of virgins, because here we have the young, healthy blood, and, and uh, she believed that it was keeping her youthful looking. So apparently she did do away with a lot of uh, peasant virgin girls who were lured into the castle to be servants and never came out again. Uh, when the, the crimes were discovered, her own relatives had her imprisoned, uh, in uh, a cell in the castle, and uh, that's where she ended her days. All right, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, our paranormal investigator, as we uh, discuss our paranormal news roundup. Listen, when we come back, I want to talk to you about this video that's that's gone viral. It's, it's rather spine-chilling, and it shows the moment uh, on a security camera when a man is knocked to the floor by what appears to be some shadowy figure and then dragged along a corridor, all captured on a security camera. We'll get Rosemary Ellen Guiley's take on it when The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and um, anxious to get your take on uh, this one, Rosemary. Uh, the video uh, appears uh, to show a man being knocked to the floor 
by some shadowy figure and then dragged along the corridor before the uh, uh, the man gets up and uh, you know runs very quickly in the opposite direction. Uh, what do you think? What, you've seen the video, obviously. What do you make of it? I'm highly skeptical of it. Ah, rats. Bear in, <laughs> bear in mind that I deal with cases all the time where people report being attacked by spectral entities and demonic entities, and these things are real. People do get attacked, and they have physical effects to show from it, bruises and cuts. They talk about being grabbed, choked, strangled, pressed on, uh, even uh, attempts to drag them out of their bed, and these are real phenomena. But something like this, it just raises too many red flags with me. One, uh, as, as it states on the Internet, the origins of this video are not known. Well, if it's a real security camera in a real place, why don't we know that? Secondly, this, this attack seems to be unprovoked. Guy's walking down a corridor and something shadowy drags him across the floor. It's highly unusual for something like that to, to take place in such a physical and visually documentable way. Uh, when entities attack people in genuine supernatural cases, uh, it's part of a syndrome of phenomena where these people have been targeted and a whole host of things are going on besides the physical attacks. So, uh, you know, a guy walking down a corridor and suddenly he's assaulted by something supernatural, it, it, it just doesn't ring true with the patterns that have been documented by paranormal researchers for a very long period of time. Well, you're right. The article um, was all over the place. I'm reading about it in the, uh, the Daily Mail online, which is in the United Kingdom, the London uh, Mail. And uh, uh, I've seen the video. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a fake, I mean, the software they have now is, is incredible. In fact, we're, we're not too far from the day, I think, when, when video will be inadmissible evidence in court because it's so easily manipulated. But I'm looking at the article, and you're right, there's nothing in here that indicates uh, where this came from. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, the closed-circuit TV is date-stamped and time-stamped, January 23, 2013, and it's about a quarter to midnight, uh, according to the, uh, the counter in the top left-hand corner. But there's nothing else, nothing else indicating where this came from. Uh, is there anything else in the actual video? I mean, I looked at it. I must have watched it uh, at least a dozen times. And uh, I don't know. It, it's very well done if, if it's a hoax. It's a very well-produced little uh, vignette. I have seen other fake videos. In fact, they've come out of the U.K. And uh, off the top of my head, I can't attribute um, the Daily Mail to being a participant in it. But uh, some years ago, there was a video that uh, also uh, went viral on the Internet about a, a, a ghost coming out of a door at Hampton Court uh, Palace. And uh, the, the palace uh, was used by Henry VIII, and it's famous for being haunted by Henry VIII and one of his uh, beheaded wives, I think it was Catherine, one of the Catherines. And uh, this figure that comes out of the doorway is this dark hooded figure. Well, it went viral, and then it was debunked as, as a fake video. So these things do surface on the Internet from time to time. And as you just mentioned, Richard, the technology is so sophisticated these days that you know, people in their own homes can do amazing things to uh, create certain effects. Uh, I watched the video over and over again, and it just uh, it sets off too many red flags with me. It just doesn't look genuine. Wouldn't it be great, though, to finally have some documented uh, evidence on, on tape of such an attack. I mean, does, does, does such evidence exist, do you think? 
Have you seen any videos that, that do you think pass the, uh, pass the test? I have not yet, and it's very hard to come by. For, for one thing, a lot of times when people are having these uh, paranormal co- encounters, they're in a slightly altered reality. Uh, we have these encounters in these bridge places between our reality and other realities, and so we're sort of phased out. Uh, sometimes we're in altered states of consciousness, we're in a semi-dream state, or even uh, awakened from, from dreaming. Uh, they just don't happen when we're walking down the street or walking down a hall during the day. Um, it's not unusual for people to feel watched, to sense presences, but these are subtle things, and they seldom are dramatic enough to register uh, on video like that. Paranormal investigators keep trying to get that dramatic piece, and it is very elusive. I've seen so many things with my own clairvoyant senses over the years, and I haven't been able to capture what I experience in a photograph. Rosemary Ellen Guiley joins us here on The Conspiracy Show once a month, and uh, you heard it here. She is declaring the that uh, closed-circuit security camera footage of a man being knocked to the floor by a shadowy wraith as a hoax and a forgery. All right. Uh, kind of disappointed to hear that, but what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, I want to get your take also on this story of a couple in Pittsburgh. It's an entire family, really. Um, a telling their troubling story about living life inside a demon-possessed house in a new book. Do you know about this case, Rosemary? I have not had the benefit of uh, personal investigation uh, on this property or with this family, but I am aware of this case, and I have read about it, and it does have all the hallmarks of genuine haunting experiences. I've dealt with cases like this myself over the years. A family moves into a place and something is resident in that home, and it starts acting out against uh, the family. Uh, What's puzzling to me about this case is um, the the husband said that uh, things start happening, you know, low-level poltergeist things, faucets turning on and off, radios going on and off, a very common uh, haunting phenomena. They they were there from the get-go, and it went on on a chronic low level for 10 years. And then suddenly, in 2003, escalated. Well, things just don't escalate without a reason. So what's missing here is why did things start to escalate? Uh, That's very puzzling to me. But at any rate, uh, assuming that there is a reason for the escalation, then things got progressively worse, which is the pattern in this kind of haunting. And it is true that oftentimes when exorcists and uh, other experts are brought onto the scene to try and alleviate the situation, it gets worse before it gets better. So the things they describe are very real, and they do happen to people. Well, this family, uh, it's a family of four from what I understand, and the mother, uh, it's the Cranmer family, uh, and again, this is documented in their book called The Demon of Brownsville Road. Uh, she says that, the, um, that she and her two children all spent time in psychiatric facilities due to, uh, to some of the things they experienced. Sometimes people get very destabilized by this, and so that's not uh, surprising to me uh, to hear that. Um, if people are very religious and things happen that really challenge their religious beliefs, 
uh, that can seriously undermine somebody's uh, view of stability in the world. Like, what, what can I count on? Uh, and children can be traumatized by this sort of thing. So on the surface, uh, based on their testimony, uh, what they say is true to pattern. And uh, some of the comments, um, I, I do know Adam Bly, who's one of the uh, demonologist experts who was brought in to comment on the case. And uh, Adam and I have had many discussions about uh, demonic influences and what they're capable of doing. And his observations are uh, also fit the pattern of um, some of these cases that many of us on the dark side of investigations see. Uh, repeatedly, uh, uh, this case could be an extreme example. The um, again, the mother uh, talks about bleeding walls, broken metal crosses among just a few incidents. The uh, the family claims occurred. Ha are these are these um, known to you? These symptoms, bleeding walls. Have you heard of such a thing? Uh, yes, I have, and. Um, Discussions and documentation of this sort of thing, like mysterious things that appear on walls, like mysterious substances that ooze down walls, uh, or stains that appear on walls, uh, broken objects, and in demonic cases, uh, some of the things that would be targeted for that sort of poltergeist effect uh, are sacred items, like crucifixes, pictures of, uh, for example, religious figures, Jesus or the Virgin Mary, statues. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a, a flaunting of, uh, it's a power thing. It's like, uh, you know, uh, your religious power isn't enough to overcome me. Uh, and similar things happen in other extreme hauntings as well, where certain things will be targeted. But yes, I have heard that about things appearing on walls. Uh, there are apparitions, people will be attacked at night, they'll have nightmares, their health will begin to deteriorate. And for some people that's a psychological thing, their psychological health deteriorates. Uh, it depends on how, they're, how vulnerable they are and how they're being affected by the presences there. Uh, again, the, the big question that's hanging out for me is why did it escalate? And uh, maybe there is a reason for that, but without that reason, I, I don't understand why things just suddenly went from um, a very low level to an intense level. All right. Uh, Rosemary, i got to get your take on this. We just have about uh, three and a half minutes, and uh, this is a real bizarre story. Uh, this is a, a very uh, sort of small sect of, of Buddhism in Japan uh, where the adherents practice live mummification the living mummies of japan what pray tell is this all about this is a procedure for uh... it's a way for transcending death and various mystical traditions have addressed this that is there a way to bypass normal physical death in order to attain enlightenment and this is uh, from our perspective a macabre and creepy process of uh, poisoning the body and depriving it over a period of uh, about three years uh, and then entombing yourself. You become a walking skeleton and you're, they, they uh, uh, consume this toxin that flushes fluids out of the body and desiccates the body and then they entomb themselves uh, and to the point of death. 
and if they can become like um, mummified, if they can succeed in mummifying themselves, they do die physically. But in the process of that, they are supposed to attain this enlightenment, and they're called, uh, you know, the living mummies. They they attain some sort of Buddhahood. Well, this to me is a very extreme way of attaining enlightenment. But there are other extreme ways of uh, attempting that as well, and this bypassing of the physical death uh, seems to be an important part of the process that only a few people literally have the stomach to pursue. So they actually start this mummification process, um, I guess, you know, once they get to a certain advanced uh, age and they decide, okay, things are winding down, I'm going to start mummifying myself, and they start taking these poisons and toxins. They start with a very severe diet of, like, seeds and nuts, uh, and uh, according to the descriptions of this process, it, it speeds the, um, the expulsion of fluids from the body. You attempt to desiccate the body as much as possible, and you literally almost starve yourself to death before uh, you entomb yourself in a sitting lotus position. And uh, then there's this other bizarre procedure, breathing through a tube. Once they're entombed, they breathe through a tube. And as long as they're alive, they ring a bell once a day to indicate that they're still alive. And then at some point, they are going to expire. And when they no longer ring the bell, then they are uh, finally sealed up. And then after a period of time, uh, the tomb is broken open. And if the mummy is preserved, uh, then it's, it's, it's like a Japanese version of sainthood. It's the incorrupt body, so to speak. And uh, it's, it's a symbol of having attained some sort of enlightenment in this process of bypassing um, traditional physical death. Well, I have another way I plan on transcending death, and that is by not dying. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Rosemary, thank you. We're out of time. I appreciate it, and uh, we will talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Thanks, Tim Spreen, back next week with a brand-new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. Coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.